Welcome everybody to the Live from the Code Bar podcast. I'm your host on this wonderful adventure, Rob. On this show, I'm going to talk to you about Morse code, one of the most popular codes still in use around the world. From its creation by inventor Samuel Morse, to its beginnings as a way of communicating over long distances, over a simple telegraph wire, to its uses in popular culture, Morse code is an invaluable tool to any treasure hunter's arsenal. So sit back and grab a drink, and I'll have a new Code Bar cocktail for you at the end of this this podcast, and let's talk about Samuel Morse and Morse code. But first off, I want to again start with some housekeeping. As usual, I want to give a great big thank you to everyone of you that have already downloaded and listened to the first two shows. The podcast has already gone over 250 downloads as of the recording of this show, which is absolutely amazing. So thank you very much. Second of all, I want to uh, give everyone a big thank you who worked on the Code Bar's first ever virtual treasure hunt. A big congratulations has to go to Team Big Mac, a truly international team made up of Gabe Sambooth, Lisa Finch, and Jim Snyder who were the first to give the correct answers for both Part 1 and Part 2. This team worked their magic and have graciously refused the prize, which will go into the prize pool for the next hunt. So stay tuned. I want to give a big shout-out and thank you to Nick Spira, Robert Brewer, Stephen Jenner, and Dustin and Deidre White, who created the music art and edited and helped promote the show. And one last big shout-out, I want to give a big thank you to Emily and Aubrey of the National Treasure Hunt Podcast. These two awesome ladies do a podcast on one of my favorite movie franchises, National Treasure, which they talk about everything from casting to the history of the movie and everything in between. So stay tuned for a future collaboration between the two of us talking about the codes that they used in the films. Now, onto the show. In order to talk about Morse code in any sort of detail, we have to start off by talking about the man who invented the code, Samuel Morse, because without his invention of the telegraph, there might never have been a Morse code. Samuel Finley Breeze Morse was born on April 27, 1791, in Charleston, Massachusetts. He was the first-born child of Pastor Jebediah Morse, who was also a minister, as well as the author of the very first American Geographic book, as well as a friend of George Washington's, and as Elizabeth Ann Finley Breeze, who also came from Goodstock. Her grandfather was a president of Princeton College. Being born into this family meant that his parents had high hopes for young Samuel. Morse's first school was the old man... Rand's school, and in 1798 he was sent to the exclusive Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts. Not much is mentioned about his early schooling, and finally in 1805, at the ripe old age of 14, he entered Yale College. His teachers at Yale, I have to have said at the time, that he very much likes, disliked studying, but, he, but that's to be fair, he was 14 at college after all, who likes studying at that age? Now, it wasn't that Morse found school boring. At Yale, he attended lectures on electricity, which fascinated him very much. But it soon became obvious that his most interesting thing that he loved most was art, and he soon decided that he wanted to be an artist. This didn't sit well with his religious father, but Morse's mind was made up. In order to make extra money while at school, he often drew sketches and portraits of his friends, as well as other people around town. In 1810, Morse graduated from Yale with Pi Beta Kappa honors, and after leaving, he painted full-time. Soon he fell under the wing and tutelage of the artist Washington Alston, who pioneered America's romantic movement of landscape painting. I have to admit, I've never heard of him, but apparently he is pretty big. It was under Alston that Morse decided to go to improve his art. He needed to go to England and attend the Royal Academy of England. So in 1811, he sailed from New York Harbour bound to improve his art in London. The trip across the Atlantic on a sailing ship at the time took 22 days from from New York to London. 
It is said that when Morse arrived in London, he wrote to his mother saying, I wish that in an instant I could have communicated the information, but the 3,000 miles are not passed over in an instant and must wait for long weeks before we can hear each other. On a side note, years later, Morse was to write on the back of this very the letter's envelope a longing for the telegraph, even in this letter. After spending time in England, Morse returned back to the US and struggled to make a living as an artist. To make extra money, Morse dabbled in inventing. In 1817, he and his brother Sidney invented a type of man-powered water pump for use in fighting fires. This machine worked, but it did not sell. On September 29, 1818, he married Lucretia Pickering Walker in Concord, New Hampshire, and very soon he had two new mouths to feed, with his daughter Susan, who was born in 1819, and Charles, born in 1823. Morse would often take long trips to support his growing family so that he could paint portraits, leaving Lucretia and the children with his mother and father. In 1822, he had tried again at his hand at inventing, and he developed a cutting device for use by marble sculptors. However, there was already an existing pattern for a similar device, and he was unable to continue with production. Morse went back to painting. Samuel was becoming fairly well-known, but still very much underpaid as an artist. In 1819, he painted a portrait of of then-President James Monroe, and in 1822, he painted Congress Hall a huge painting of all of the sitting members of the House of Representatives. In 1825, he painted the portrait of the very famous French general Lafayette. Tragedy, however, soon struck in that year, and it was not long after the birth of their second son James in 1825 that Lucretia had a heart attack and died. Years after the death of his wife, Morse made a trip to France to paint. It was while he was there that he became fascinated with the French semaphore telegraph system. An optical telegraph, or a semaphore, was a system using a line of stations, usually built around 15 miles apart, for the purpose of conveying textual information by means of visual signals. In each semaphore, a man usually climbed to the top of a huge tower, held up huge codes for the next man to see. They could have been something like a shutter telegraph, which which used panels that could be rotated to block or pass light from the sky behind to convey the information. This fundamentally had one huge problem. On a bad weather's day, or in fog or poor visibility, this system did not work, and Morse took notice of this shortcoming and was determined to find a better solution. In 1832, he sailed from France back to New York. One evening, while at dinner, the passengers were all talking about electricity, and an electromagnet was discussed. This could be as simple as a wire wound around a nail attached to a battery which would produce an electrical current or a jolt. This current then passed through the wire. All puns intended, this caused a huge jolt in Morse's thinking, and he realized that electricity could be used to transmit messages. And for the rest of the trip, Morse worked on his idea for an electric telegraph system. At first, he kept it simple. It would work with a sender tapping out a message in some sort of a code. On the other end, the electrical current would move a pencil, which would print out the code. By the end of the voyage, Morse was so excited by his new invention, he told the ship's captain while disembarking, Well, Captain, should you hear of the telegraph one of these days as the wonder of the world? Remember the discovery was made on the good ship Sully. Very soon, Morse had developed the very first prototype telegraph. He used ordinary materials that he could find in his home, a picture frame, a table, some lead pieces that he melted down for the parts. This prototype worked, and it was simple to make. But the world ignored his invention. The biggest problem that Morse had was money. He had none, and because of this, it wasn't until 1837 that Morse was able to give his first public demonstration. 
He had strung by hand almost 10 miles of wire around his classroom. He was at that time working as an art instructor to make ends meet. He then invited wealthy businessmen from all over New York to come, hoping that they would be impressed enough to invest in his invention. None of them did. The only person who seemed interested in the telegraph was a young man by the name of Alfred Vail. Vail's father was in the iron business, and he offered to help Morse. Soon, another partner, Leonard Gale, joined the group, and improvements were made on the system. Since coming up with his idea, Morse had continuously petitioned the U.S. Congress for money to test the telegraph properly, but it was always denied. The next big telegraph event was to be held on October in 1842, and it, it was again a failure. But it was not Morse's fault. This time, Morse had hand-wrapped nearly two miles of wire in cotton, tar, and rubber to make it waterproof. He then paid a man to row him across New York Harbor while he laid the wire in the water. Two operators stood on opposite sides of the harbor, ready to send and receive messages. When Morse hooked up everything the night before the test, everything seemed to work perfectly. The next morning, however, fishermen in New York Harbor, who did not have any idea what was going on, pulled up the cable, and before the test, they cut the wire, not knowing what it was. The demonstration was cancelled, and Morse was labelled as a fraud, a huckster, and a liar. It wasn't until March 3, 1844, that Morse again requested funds from Congress. Morse, by this time, was used to disappointment, and he left before Congress could even debate the matter. The next morning, he was awoken by a young lady who congratulated him. It turned out that just after midnight, his request was voted on, and it passed by just a margin of six votes. Morse and his partners were now under a very tight deadline. They had only two months to lay a telegraph line between Baltimore and Washington, D.C., and everything had to be made from scratch. When it was found that the wires could not be properly insulated and could not therefore be buried, they instead strung the wires from tall poles above the ground. Finally, on the morning of May 24, 1844, Morse sat in a room in the U.S. Supreme Court building in Washington, D.C., and tapped out a message that was successfully received in Baltimore. The message was a line given to Morse by that young lady back in March. What hath God wrought? With that, suddenly the telegraph was everywhere. Within 12 years, telegraph wires crisscrossed the United States, and by 1866, a telegraph wire was run across the Atlantic Ocean, connecting the U.S. with Europe. Morse was again to marry in 1848 and had four more children. Never again did he have to worry about money. On April 2nd, 1872, he passed away in his home in New York and was buried in Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. And that is the story of Samuel Morse, but not the end of our story. Because Morse used an electrical jolt to travel over large distances, he needed to come up with a system to use the jolts to communicate. And with the invention of the telegraph, Morse and Val also invented the code that bears Morse's name, Morse code, or as it's more commonly known now, International Morse Code. Morse code is a way to encode the 26 English letters from A to Z, as well as numerals, into a series of dots and dashes. The duration of the dots are a time measurement. With the dashes, they are usually three times the amount of a dot. Letters of a word are then separated by a space equal to the three dots. The words themselves are separated with a space of seven dots, like this. In his earliest variation of the code, Morse had planned to use numbers sent as electrical jolts, and when paired with an already existing code book, they would provide a word. 
This was determined to be unworkable because of the amount of words in the English language, so Morse and Val in 1840 developed a series of dots and dashes that we know as Morse code now. Val used the frequency of the letters, the use of the letters in the English language in order to make the code simple. The most frequent letter in English is the letter E, so it has the shorter code of a single dot. T is a single dash, A is a dot and a dash, S is three dots, and so on until you get to Y, dash, dot, dash, dash, or J, dot, dash, dash, dash. In the original Morse telegraphs, the receiver's armature, and now the armature is the rotating coil of the electrical motor, made a clicking sound as it moved in and out of position to mark the paper tape. The telegraph operators soon learned that they could translate the clicks directly into dots and dashes, and they could, with practice, write them down faster than the machines could. This was how Morse code was later in the 1890s was adopted for use in radio communication, with the dots and dashes being sent as short and long tones. With the ever-increasing use of radio, the use of telegraph wires and undersea cables started to become obsolete, and by the early 1910s it was being widely used in aviation, both for communication and to identify location markers. It also has a very, was a very successful way to, for ships to communicate ship-to-ship ship or ship-to-shore. Several different Morse codes have been developed because of the many non-English language, and they all, some of them even use more than 26-letter alphabets. Morse code has been used right up until the modern era and was used as an international standard for maritime distress right up until the 1999 when it was replaced by the Global Maritime Distress Safety System. When the French Navy ceased using Morse code on January 31st, 1997, they sent out a final message. It read, Calling all, this is our last cry before our eternal silence. In the United States, the final commercial Morse code transmission was on July 12th, 1999, signing off with Samuel Morse's original 1844 message, What Hath God Wrought? And and prosing SK for the end of contact. So that's the story of Morse code. But I wanted to share a couple of fun Morse code facts with you. Some of these you might know, but I'm sure some of them you don't. The International Distress Code SOS, which is three dots, three dashes, and three dots, has been used to save many lives in several maritime disasters, including the rescue of all 46 people from the Woodham Steamship Kentucky in 1910 off the coast of North Carolina, and more famously, the SOS sent out by the 25 by the 25-year-old Chief Telegraphist Jack Phillips on April 14th and 15th in 1912 from the sinking RMS Titanic. On May 6, 2003, Andrei Bindazov from Belarus successfully transmitted 216 Morse code marks of a mixed text in only one minute, giving him the record for the fastest Morse code message ever sent. Here's another interesting story. This one is from World War II. Major Alexis Castiglari was taken prisoner by the Germans in 1941 and was sent to a series of different prison camps where he whiled away the long hours by sewing. A piece he created in December 1941 looks innocent enough. Indeed, it looks so innocent that the guards allowed him to hang it on the walls of all the camps that he stayed in. However, the piece contains two subversive messages coded into the border, messages that if they had been discovered by the guards would have put his life at risk. The borders spelled out, God save the king, and the inner border, which had decidedly more risky, F.U. to Hitler. To create the piece, Castigliari used threads taken from a disintegrating pullover that belonged to a fellow prisoner, a Cretan general. 
For the four years, the piece hung on the walls of prison camps until his release. The Germans never even spotted the secret messages of defiance hanging in front of them. In fact, the Germans were so impressed with the officer's skills that they had him give classes to the other prisoners. Major Castigliari's defiance sewing has even been recently on display in the Victorian Albert Museum in London. The Major continued sewing until his death in 1990, and his son, a retired Navy officer, continues this habit today. Now, Jeremiah Denton was an American A-6 fighter pilot who was shot down over North Vietnam in early 1965. He was one of the first American POWs. Denton was forced by his captors to participate in 1966 in a televised propaganda event that was broadcast all over the United States. While answering questions, all the time feigning trouble with the blinding lights, Denton managed to blink out Morse code for the word T-O-R-T-U-R-E, torture. And with this, he confirmed for the first time to U.S. intelligence that the American POWs were being tortured by the North Vietnamese. Singer Johnny Cash, before he became famous for songs like Ring of Fire, spent time in the U.S. Air Force. During his service, he became a crack Morse code operator. He was on duty one day when he intercepted news from the Soviet Union that Joseph Stalin had just died. Cash is believed to be the first American to have heard this news. In 2010, a general in the Colombian Army to help in their long war with the FARC guerrillas reached out to an advertising executive producer to produce a pop song that contained a hidden Morse code message. The song was played on the radio, alerting the hostages of the FARC of their upcoming rescue. And last of all, did you know that the following artists put Morse code into some of their songs? Let's start with this one. The opening riff of the Rush song YYZ is actually Morse code for YYZ. Now, I use Rush in uh, the virtual treasure hunt, so I thought I would include that again here. It is debated that Metallica used Morse code in their music video for the song One. In the video, a kid is shown using his body to transmit Morse code. And last of all, the English rock band The Clash used Morse code at the end of their song London Calling, with the letter V for the victory in Europe during World War II. For this show's Code Bar Cocktail, I've taken a recipe that I found online and I've tweaked it a little bit. I want to introduce you all to a new staple of the Code Bar, the Telegraph Cider. But first off, I do want to give you a little bit of background about why I decided to use cider. Uh, This is from an article that's titled, and it will be in the show notes, This Hard Cider Begins at an Apple Tree Near Samuel Morse's Grave by Jake Greenberg. Now, the grave of Samuel Morse has a special secret for lovers of hard cider. Morse, most famous for inventing the telegraph and co-developing, you guessed it, Morse code, lies in Brooklyn's Greenwood Cemetery, underneath an apple tree. Each year, apples from the tree are fermented to make a cider in Morse's honor. The Malus Immortalis, as the cider is known, is not sold commercially, but can be sampled on a tour of the cemetery. The creators describe the taste as mezcal eucalyptus, according to Atlas Obscuria. A far cry from most contemporary ciders. The difference between the ciders of Morse's time and the hard ciders we enjoy today has to do with the sweetness. Back in the day, cider brewers would usually harvest apples for their own homegrown trees, which tended to be a little bit more tart. The Malus Immortalis pays homage to that legacy. So I've decided to play on that legacy as well, and that's why I created the Telegraph Cider. So here are the ingredients. Start off with 3 ounces of Angry Orchard Crisp Apple Cider. 1.5 1.5 ounces of dark rum, my favorite, and 
0.5 ounces of toasted marshmallow syrup. Now, obviously you're going to make your own marshmallow syrup and this is what you're going to do. For that, you're going to need one cup of water, one cup of sugar, one teaspoon of vanilla extract, and eight large marshmallows. Start off by combining the sugar, water, sugar and water in a pot, bring to the boil, and make sure that all the sugar is dissolved. Reduce the heat and allow to simmer. Put in the marshmallows on a skewer and toast them until they're slightly burnt. You can use either a stove burner or a lighter, or if you have a fire going, of course, use that. Add the toasted marshmallows to the simmering syrup and stir until they are all dissolved. Turn off the heat and allow to cool. Strain the mixture with a fine strainer, leaving just the syrup. Stir in the vanilla extract and store in the fridge until you need it. Here's the directions on how you mix this. Add the Angry Orchard apple cider, the dark rum, and the toasted marshmallow syrup into a martini glass with a crushed graham cracker rim. Stir and top with a toasted marshmallow on the rim. Now, I'm recording this on a very cold New Jersey day, and the Telegraph Cider, I can tell you what, it is a perfect warm-me-up drink. It's now one of the specialties that I'm going to be serving here at the Code Bar from now on. So enjoy. So now we've come to the end of another show. For all of the information that doesn't make it into the podcast, please don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with, all, with the handle at Code Bar Live. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, and please help the podcast grow by leaving a rating and review, especially on the big one, Apple Podcasts. I'll be back in two weeks with a new show all about the unsolved armchair treasure hunt, The Whistle Pig by Duck Miller. Until next time, keep digging. (laughs) 